Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes are available free, more than 500 and counting. If you would like to support this show, you can do so at Patreon dot com slash other ppl pod that's patreon.com slash other ppl pod thanks you are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done i think it's really beautiful Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know? It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person, just one everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. Asia Gable is my guest today. Her debut novel, The Ensemble, is available now from Riverhead. I had a nice time meeting her, nice time talking with her. Her book is getting rave reviews. Our conversation is coming up in just a second. It's been one of those days where there were lots of logistics, lots of logistical complications. We had some furniture delivered today, some patio furniture. The umbrella that came with it required some light assembly. I tried to do that. I realized that the umbrella was broken. I sort of freaked out. It was kind of like 2001 A Space Odyssey when the ape starts hitting the this, this skeleton of that ox with a femur bone. You remember that? I got violent with an umbrella today. I'm not proud of it. I feel like I need to check in with myself spiritually. But, you know, if I'm, t- if I'm going to be honest with you, I think the reason why I lost it on the umbrella is because my wife and I had to go tour elementary schools for my son this morning. He, uh, as you know, has some special needs. So we're touring these schools. There's a very different protocol for parents of children with special needs when you're trying to figure out how to handle their schooling. And it's not fun. It's so heartbreaking. And it's also stressful because these feel like very consequential decisions, you know. Early education matters. And my son is a very unique case. He's got some physical disabilities Cognitively, it seems like he's there, at least for now, uh, most, mostly. I mean, you know, he seems like he's with it. He's verbal. It puts him into this uh, middle ground. A lot of the special ed classes in LAUSD public schools, you know, they're filled with kids who are much worse off than he is. Or they're nonverbal or, you know, it's this litany of things. And you're trying to figure out how he's going to fit in. What does he need the most? What does he need cognitively? What does he need physically? 
like, what do we do? It's a lot of pressure. And then you come home and there's patio furniture and you're trying to assemble it. You're thinking about all this and the umbrella breaks and all of a sudden you turn into an ape. You start beating the ground. You start beating the umbrella with a piece of wood. That's what happened. I freaked out. <laughs> I'm just telling you, like, this is it. I stand in front of this microphone. I, every week I stress out about, or every time I do this show, I stress out about what to say. I have very mixed feelings about whether or not anybody needs to hear about me in this show. It should be about the author who is my guest. I should just get out of the way, ask the questions. But people, when I have asked my listeners to weigh in, they say, we love the monologues, do the monologues. And, you know, not every week does something funny happen to me. But it is sort of funny to imagine me like holding about a, you know, it's about the length of a femur, like a piece of wood. It's like this wooden umbrella. It's poorly engineered. I'm just going to come out right now and say that the, the umbrella that we bought, it's a, it's a shitty piece of equipment. It's poorly engineered. And I, uh, I had a three feet long, like a femur length piece of wood in my hand. And when it all dawned on me that the umbrella was broken and it was going to have to be returned and it was going to be a tedious process involving customer service and returns and replacements and waiting, I had a moment where I just started beating the umbrella with the piece of wood. Had you seen it, I think you would have enjoyed it in a weird way. I'm just speculating. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest is Asia Gable. Her debut novel, The Ensemble, is available now from Riverhead. So nice to talk to her. So nice to share this conversation with you now. Here she is, folks. This is Asia Gable. I think living here makes you examine that ambition a lot because everybody has it. And and then you have to think, like, what do I want? Do I, do I want money or do I want, like, recognition or do I want a piece of art that people can consume and... Do I care who consumes it and how? So I think, but I think thinking that way is like helpful as an artist. And I just, I haven't thought that way in Port. I just didn't think that way in Portland. What, at all. What, what do you want from it? Do you know? I mean, if, if we're talking along those lines, like, have you considered these things and come to any kind of conclusion? Um, I read this headline this morning. I didn't read the article because I haven't had time. But um, it's like it was something like um, I'm. I'm not afraid of saying that I want money. Oh yeah, anymore. I read this. I read this Who op-ed. Wrote that? 
Oh, God. It was an op-ed, yeah. But it's an author. She lives in Los Angeles. She wrote a bestseller. And uh, just forgive me for blanking on the name. But the bestseller, you know, had this big book. Yeah. And she, I can summarize it. She um, experienced abuse. Like, she actually does some psychoanalysis of herself in the piece. And she was experienced, uh, I think, a sexual assault in her youth. And she kind of traces her desire for money as... Uh, a desire for power so that other people don't have control over her and she can kind of protect herself. But she also wants her independence, mm-hmm. um, which I can relate to. Like, that's the way I think I uh, perceive of having money. But boy, would it be nice to just like not need anybody else yeah. and that be financially independent and just have fuck you money, basically. Yes. And uh, and then also, you know, I think there's a gendered thing in our uh, culture where you know, it's okay for men to say things like that, but mm-hmm. women in the past, at least it's not been as acceptable right. to admit that like you want to go out and make fuck you money. Yeah. Yeah. So I get it. Um, but then again, like I can always like pull the rug out from underneath myself. I'm like, yeah, I don't know about this like pursuit of wealth that leads to misery. Uh, every like wisdom tradition and faith tradition in the world talks about this money is the root of all evil. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I can start to and I've never lived in a city where wealth is more on display too. Like in New York, you kind of don't really know who has it and who doesn't. It's all kind of like hidden in their high rise apartments. Maybe I don't know, but here you just have cars and you have clothes, you have everything and you can tell who has money and who doesn't. And it's sort of, um, uh, yeah, that, that makes you think about like, what does it mean to have or want money too? Um, I just think it would be nice to get paid to do something that I'm good at. And I think as a writer and to get paid a lot. Yeah. Cause if you, if you yes. get it, if you get a TV writing job, this is the big thing. There's actually money to be made in TV. You can mm-hmm. make right out of the gates, like 150 grand yeah. as a staff writer on a TV show. Yeah. And yeah. so that's, that's why the, everyone's fighting for those, those seats at the table. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I think that's kind of cool, but, um, I can, I think it's also can be very gross very quickly. It can bring out the worst in a lot of people. Yeah. And I can tell you, I was having this conversation recently and again, like I'm conflicted about it. I'm going to tell you the conversation I was having, but I always have to qualify with, I could be wrong. <laughs> there could be psychological layers to this uh-huh. that like muddy the waters. In fact, I think there probably are to a degree, but I was just like, you know, I can be around a group of people in Los Angeles. Like you could take me to any like house party put me in a backyard or in a living room with like 20 people. Mm-hmm. And if five of them work in the entertainment industry and 15 of them don't, I could find the five that do mm-hmm. like within a few minutes yeah. of talking to them. Yeah. And like, what is that? Yeah. And is that even true? But yeah. it feels like it's true. And there's like this, it kind of breeds like, a, uh, like there's a lot of inside baseball talk mm-hmm. and, uh, I don't know. It's also a way they really quickly me- measure status too. Like really quickly, you're like, are you a writer's assistant? Like, are yeah, you, yeah. you re- oh, I was just writing my, I was writing my own episode last weekend. Like, yeah, right. oh, okay. Like very quickly you see where someone is. Um, I think, no, it's hard because it is, it can get, it can, it can be very gross. I want to make stuff that I want to consume though. Like I want to make stuff I want to read. I want to make stuff I want to watch. But what if somebody offers you a staff writing job on some shitty fucking <laughs> show and they say, here's 150 grand, you would say, and, and like, I would not judge, but I think I would say, well, I have to weigh that. That's, that's good money. Yeah. 
and then all of a sudden, but then you're like, this is not creatively fulfilling. There's a lot of those in mm -hmm. Los Angeles who are like, what is this piece of shit I'm putting out into the world every week? Yeah. But they're paying me and people are consuming it. But, yeah. You know, so to get to the point where you're actually like running your own show or I guess working on a show that you feel really strongly about, that's either luck or just a long period of hard work or some combination yeah. of both. Yeah, I think that's why I'm I'm not trying to do that. Like I'm not trying to get staffed on anything and everything. Like if I was, I think I'd be yeah, I that's what I'd be doing. Like I'd be out there trying to do that. I'm just trying to write something of my own and see what happens and keep writing books. So Would you ever would you ever like bootstrap it and produce your own pilot? Did, I don't have that skill set. I know, but I mean like <laughs> like go fund me. Like, you know what I'm saying? Say, yeah. I'm going to make this thing. Cause this is my dream. It's so like, the conversations around creative ideas in Hollywood get really inane. I, f I feel like, uh, nobody believes, especially when you've never done it before. Nobody like believes your idea, no matter how great it is. I know. Most of the time, sometimes people see the light yeah. or, you know, sometimes you get a break or whatever, but yeah. there's a part of me that's like, just go make an episode Yeah. and then show it to people yeah. and just be like, here. Yeah. Like I did it. Like this is my business card. I'm yeah. not making any promises to you. I actually, I actualized this. Yeah. I think um, that's what people do with like, don't they make short films to make a feature film? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like sometimes I, like I was going to do this, uh, and I still want to do, but I just haven't had the time is, uh, I was going to make this animated, uh, episode called baked dads. Like I'm fascinated by baked dads. Yeah. I'm fat. Yeah. It's, <laughs> going to be an animated show with two like middle-aged like pudgy dad bros uh -huh. like just walking around la like very baked and like but talking about serious stuff yeah like that is what interests me i'm not interested in like stoner conversation yeah i'm interested in the nor the way that weed has been normalized and, and has been normalized my entire adult life in a certain subset of the population yeah and just like how that winds up enmeshing itself into domestic concerns yeah and uh, i don't think people a lot of times in the popular culture uh, have seen that. Yeah. Like it's not, you know, like the, the basic ordinary, dumb, silly, uh, but also sometimes like serious and even like, you know, a small percentage of the time, profound conversations that, uh, happen there. That's something that I wanted to try to do, but do you watch high maintenance. I do. Yeah. I, that's a show that I really like. Yeah. I, I liked, I watched it on Vimeo. Oh, wow. Like okay. back in the See, day. Yeah. And yeah, I was like, yeah. okay, this is a, this is my jam right here. I love that. Yeah. I felt like the first HBO season sort of lost me, but then mm -hmm. this new season, I've watched a couple episodes and it feels like it's back on track. Yeah. I've only seen a few episodes of this season and I've been surprised. I really like it. It's a good show. Yeah. It's a good show. And it's got this like interesting backstory, but sort of have a crush on the, the guy, like that guy. Like I want to be like, yeah. I want to be him. I want to be him, yeah. but yet I'm so far from him. Yeah. And then this book that I'm reading about these back to the landers. Oh God. People have the courage of their convictions. <laughs> I just don't. I want to. And I, but yet I, I don't know if they're right. You know, are these people insane. Like they're like making, you know, they're Which, like canning tomatoes. And so would you ever do that? I mean, my wife would no, no sooner go back yeah. to the land. Like no way. So it was funny the other day. Did you watch that um, Wild Wild Country, that um, documentary on the I've Church? I've watched like two and a half episodes. Each one took me like five nights because I just fall asleep. Well, if I'm watching anything after 7 p.m., I'm nodding yeah. off. But uh, I really, that's, I love that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. My, my boyfriend falls asleep during them too. But um, I was talking to my mom and I said something like, 
uh, I was watching this documentary about this, 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 um, oh no, no, we were talking about Mexico. I just went to Mexico and she said, and I got a little sick and she was like, oh, we got sick when the commune went to Baja. And I was like, what? <laughs> She's like, oh, I forgot you weren't alive then. Yeah, we went. She's going to hate that I'm telling the story, but because now she's like a Japanese woman, like very, I mean, unassuming. But in the 70s, her and my dad and my two older siblings lived on a commune up in Northern California called Oz um, that I didn't really know much about it. And then this conversation just sort of turned into this like, wait, you guys went, you guys went to Baja and like, she's like, oh, yeah, like. They have this. They had peyote day. I never took peyote, but we did. They had peyote day, and they thought it would be a good idea to just go do a Baja outpost for a little. And I just went on and on, and like, I just forgot that that was like, like they didn't have electricity. She had two tiny babies. There was an outhouse. Right. Um, she hated it. She hated every moment. She was like, "It's impossible to have babies on a commune with no running, like running water oh, and the like diapers." And I mean, oh my hard. god, and, oh my god, yeah. And they had to build their own house, and she was like, "We did it for a year or two, and then I said never again." Well, see, this is this is the thing. This is where the two strains of our conversation so far collide. Where you have <laughs> um, uh, back to the land, and, like idealism, and like this desire to live an authentic life, uh, whether and and also like an authentic creative life. Yeah, you know, not just like an authentic life economically, but an authentic life creatively and. Uh, you know, the way you eat and the way you have like free time and contact with nature and all these things that in my head can seem so beautiful and true and perfect. But then on the other side of things, you have economic realities, mm-hmm. like you need money, you know, or, or you need to be willing to endure pretty significant hardship. Yeah. It's not a simple equation yeah. where you just like snap your fingers and go back to the land and start homesteading. And it's not a simple equation, yeah. uh, to, you know, move to Los Angeles and strike it rich. Yeah. You know, know. you got to find some balance in there. Right. Yeah. Maybe I'll just get some chickens from my backyard. Yes. Starting us all out like Portland. Yeah. (laughs) The urban chicken thing. I'm just saying. Uh, Is that a lot in Portland? Is that people are Um, always, everybody has chickens in Portland. Yeah. Um, everybody. Yeah. They've, they're really, everyone's gardening. It's, it's, I, I'm not good at that stuff. And Me so that's neither. why I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> I don't know the first thing about gardening. I, I kill everything. And then I'm like thumping my chest talking about how I ride my bike all over LA. And yet like I run my air conditioner in the yeah. summer. But that's the balance. Like, I guess it's, it's the it. middle way. Yes. That's what I am. The middle path. I'm the middle path. Oh my God. I'm the Buddha. <laughs> Who knew? Um, so anyway, like you said, Northern California, is that where you're from? Yeah. I'm from Santa Rosa. Okay, yeah. like wine country, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Are you are your folks into winemaking or anything like that? No, oh. we grew up um, really poor um, in this middle, of, like uh, one of the richest parts of California. Well, um, now, but back in the day, yeah, was yeah. it was it wealthy back no, in the back day? Back in the day, I think they moved there because it was like affordable place to live, and like the wine business was just sort of like getting off the ground, and. Um, yeah, no. Um, now their house is worth eight and a half million dollars. <laughs> no, they bought it for fifteen grand in nineteen seventy four. Oh like, my god, I wish my uh, the, those fires though like burned through so much of. Were you were you affected? Was your family? It stopped about my mom was evacuated, but it stopped about a mile from her house. Yeah. She's the only one who still lives there. So. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was a great place to grow up. Sure. Yeah, it was beautiful. And Sounds quiet. great. Yeah. But uh, what did your folks do? Like, were they? My dad was a carpenter. 
And then my mom worked in a factory. Um, like she assembled parts for boats. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like what kind of parts? Um, like, like, I don't know, but parts for like yachts, like big boats. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure I should ask her. Yeah. She doesn't, she doesn't do that anymore, but. But see, this sounds like, you know, to go back to the commune phase. Like yes. You become self-sufficient. You learn how to do things and make things and you're good with your hand. You have to be. Yeah. I mean, she's the daughter of her parents were farmers in Fresno. Okay. Like Japanese farmers, grape farmers. So. Right. She knew how to do stuff. So. Yeah. I don't know how to do anything. I don't know how to do anything either. Whenever we, I'm like, I'm going apple picking this weekend. My mom's always like, do you know how hard it is to go in the fields all day? Like, why do you, why would you do that? Right. I was like, because we have to go back to the land. Something. <laughs> Strawberry picking. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I, we took our, uh, we were up in the Midwest visiting my uh, wife's folks and we took our daughter to an apple orchard. This was a years ago, you know, a few years ago. And there were just bees everywhere. Like swarms. Because, <laughs> you know, like all the, yes. you know, I was just like, oh. Like, yeah. I thought it was going to be like this glorious thing. But the whole time I was just like trying to make sure my daughter didn't get like swarmed by yellow jackets. Yeah. Doing this weird, like, imitation of what we used to do, I guess. I don't know. Okay. So you um, are growing up kind of like bucolic, right? It's sort of like rural, or was it? did you feel like you were part of a... I mean, I, I don't no. have any context for Santa Rosa. I've There's never... a lot of rural parts. It felt very suburban oh, where I lived. Yeah, very okay. suburban. But, I mean, very close to, like, the ocean and the vineyards, and it was all very close. Okay. And yeah. so how did you wind up uh, interested in books and writing and, I... and television? I always, um, wrote since I was little. I feel like that's everybody's answer, but that's like the right answer. I think like I just, um, wrote as a way to like play and imagine. And then, um, I also played music obsessively. I played cello for, okay. I was going to ask you Yeah, for, since I was five. Um, so I did both of those things kind of like intensely. Um, so you're a good cellist. Yeah, I will. I was. And yeah. You, if, if I brought you a cello right now, could you play me something? Yeah, I have a cello. Mm-hmm. I still play. You should have brought it. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's hard when you're not as good as you used to. I don't know if you do play. No. It's like, it's hard. Cause if you, it's the same thing with like running or anything that you do. If you don't do it regularly, it just, it goes away so fast. Yeah. I took bongo lessons in college. <laughs> I'm a terrible oh human being. It's all you need to know about me. That's really bad. So, yeah. So yeah. Some guy I didn't in his basement. I had to take lessons. I got co- I got college <laughs> credit. The guy was like he was actually like a dr- he was a, he was like a percussionist. He was into like world music and tribal yeah. tribal drums. And, you know, he was he was very good at yeah. it. But he would just you know I remember he just like always had like socks on, never wore shoes. Mm. Seemed like a little stoned. Yeah. And, like there were just like stains on his shirt. <laughs> we were just sitting. We would sit in his basement and play the drums together. That was really <laughs> different from my experience. <laughs> Playing cello lessons and everything. So I played it competitively. I played a lot. Okay. So that's the world of your book. And you, I was going to ask, yeah. like, well, this is such a, like, this seems like foreign territory for a, a literary person. So you have a background in that. Yeah. And I also, what strikes me too, is that writing tends to be, you know, um, and this gets talked about all the time, a very solitary endeavor. You know, mm-hmm. people like to be alone. They like to look at their books and you know look at their keyboard and not talk to anybody Mm -hmm. Uh, but music and incidentally television writing is a much more collaborative affair and i am always fascinated by the relationships that are forged in like to give a popular example like rock bands that Mm -hmm. exist and stand the test of time yeah 
So like Mick and Keith and the Rolling Stones, like these guys have been doing it for 40 years or whatever, 50 years, you know? Yeah. And, uh, like they sort of hate each other, but they love each other and people change over life. Like it's one thing when you're like 24 and you're in a rock band, Mm -hmm. but then what happens when you're like 44 and everyone's got kids and different agendas and, you know, people change over the course of a life. And so you're constantly having to kind of recalibrate your relationships with them. Not only personally, but creatively. Yeah. It's a lot to manage. That's exactly, that's like the trailer for my book. That's exactly, I mean, that was exactly what I wanted to, to write about. So, cause it takes place over 25 years. So it starts when they're like 24 and ends when they're closer to 50. Um, and I was just interested in like how crazy it is to have to forge a, both a, to have to forge a career with people yeah. for the whole career and ha- like your success sort of depends on your intimate relationships with them. Like that's very unusual and not like most jobs, not even like an actor's job. Doesn't like, isn't like that. They are always changing partners or team members or whatever. And it's like you do it for a concentrated period of yeah. time and it gets to feel like a family and then you disband. Yes. Yeah. And then you go find a new family. Yes. But this one, you have to sort of make the family for a long time. It's like a marriage. Yes. I mean, that's why Mick and Keith, it's like, they're basically like an old married couple. Yeah. They can talk shit about each other, but like, I would bet that if you fucked with one of them, the other one would stand, you know, would step in. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. That was the original title for my book was unlikely marriages. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. But then someone was like, it sounds like it's about a marriage. I was like, I was, I was walking last night. Um, I was walking the dog. I was thinking about book titles and like how, you know how like the word American <laughs> is like constantly used. Mm-hmm. It's like American this. And I get it. You know, they're trying to sell books. And then like there's a, then there's the whole trend of like a cupcake or a stroller on the cover mm-hmm. or uh, what else have I heard and, and heard people talk it's about? Like a wife. The a wife. wife. Yeah. Or, or like I was, you know what I was doing is I was walking past a, a bookstore and in the window it was like the woman in the window. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so then I started thinking like what would be like the most marketable title yeah and it was called like an american woman who's married or something you know i forget i came up with like the perfect one and now of course it escapes me yeah um but unlikely marriages like, yeah uh, you know like versus that, that was a quote from um like the guarnery string quartet he said it's yeah being in a quartet is like um being in the most unlikely of marriages and i just liked that phrase and i thought that was really apt like you do have to yeah you have to make this thing work because you're committed financially, emotionally, um, and it's with four people. It just seemed like s- super ripe territory for a book. A conflict, well, relationship. Yeah, I was being coached by this quartet because I studied at Stanford. I didn't go to Stanford, but I studied quartet music there a little bit. And they, we, it was like a week long thing, and um, the violist was coaching us, or I forget the violinist, and they were they were coaching us together. And in a session and they got in an argument in front of us. And I, I just, that's always it, uncomfortable. Yeah. I just didn't occur to me that like they had relation, a relationship like else. And you it was one of those arguments where you could tell it, had, it was not just like it had been stewing. Uh-huh. Something, it was about something else that wasn't what was happening in the room. Right. And it never it stuck with me. I was like, Oh shit. They have to like go play tomorrow with this argument. That's crazy. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. First thing that strikes me in hearing you say that is that, isn't it weird how often when you see a person or when I myself or you yourself, uh, I'm going to assume 
like express anger. Like when anger comes out of me, it'll be about a, but really it's about like B, C and D. Mm-hmm. There's always like this subtext to anger. Yeah. Like you've got this stuff going on and then something triggers it. And then like you get angry at that thing, but it's really just sort of displaced. Yeah. I'm not going to say this correctly, but I'm going to try to. My boyfriend and I just moved into together in together yesterday. Oh, <laughs> this is the perfect time to talk to you. So we have had these weird arguments about stuff that are not about stuff, but we were standing in the kitchen like two nights ago talking about where something was going to go. And we started to get an argument and, and I just like left my body for a minute, seeing him be so upset about, I was upset too. It was not him. We were both upset, but he was, he was saying something at me like angrily. And I was like, Oh my God, this is what it is to be a human. Like, this is weird that, and we just got engaged too. So I'm like, now we're going to, (laughs) congratulations. Thanks. But it just was like, Oh, forever. We're going to like, be arguing with each other about something that's not what we're arguing about. Well, listen, listen, I'll give you, crazy. Okay, no, no, I'm, I'm, uh, 11 years married. <laughs> uh, is that right? Yeah. It'll be 11 years this summer. And just like yesterday I opened the drawer where like the forks and the knives and the spoons go. And like all this, like there's like a collection of sharp knives that have been placed on top of the butter knife. <laughs> and I'm just like, and I'm like between the two of us, like I'm the, what, what was it? Ozzy and Harriet or what was the odd couple? I can't even remember, but um, one, one of them was neat and one of them was not. I'm the neat one, okay. like by far. And uh, I'm looking at it and I'm just like, oh, oh my God, like you can't. And I haven't said anything. I have not. I've, I've gotten to the point now in my life and my relationship with my wife for like, I would say like eight times out of 10, I just don't say anything. I'll just move the knives. Just let it go. But then there's also like, we have this little jar where all the keys go. And I'm okay. Cause we have like stacked parking in our driveway. We don't have like a two car. Right. So like we, I do a lot of moving of cars cause mm-hmm. my car is a stick shift and she doesn't know how to drive a stick shift okay. and all this stuff. So I'm like, just put the keys in this thing. Yeah. Never puts the keys there. <laughs> so then I have to move the cars and I'm like, <laughs> and I mean, I'm constantly, so it's like that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's that is a, that is a weird realization that I think just happened when I got engaged where I was like, Oh, you can't just walk away from an argument. Like, no, this you, is, you got to deal with it. You got to learn and, to not say something about the knives, which is what I hope to get to <laughs> eventually. Well, and the thing too, is that I think all couples and, and married couples or just like people who are, uh, in long-term relationships that are intimate and are living in co- close quarters yeah. or working in close quarters to tie it back to your book. Like yeah. you don't have to be married to the person no. to experience this sort of stuff. It's just human relationships. But what I think is true, at least to some extent, is that between two people, it's the same, like the arguments tend to be cyclical. There tend to be like a few things, mm-hmm. a small handful, and they just get played over and over and over again. And eventually, like, hopefully you start to learn a little bit and the edges start to get rounded off yeah. of it. And then eventually you just get senile and you just don't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> you just quit. So that was what was <laughs> fun about writing that book, writing over a huge amount of time was we did, I got to do like show that hopefully like they like when you're young you have concerns and arguments about things that are when you're older i would imagine seem a lot different and especially when you're arguing with that same person over a long course of time um it it matures in this way that hopefully is revelatory and so 
that's that was like a huge part of why I placed it over such a huge amount of time because yeah. I wanted to explore that because it is crazy. Well, and also just to tie this back to my uh, utopian <laughs> back to the land fantasy, <laughs> it's like so at the front of my brain right now. Yeah. Um, like one of the quotes in there or like one of the ideas driving the book is like, how do you live well? How do you do life right? Mm-hmm. Not like in right in quotes. How do you make sure you don't fritter away your very limited time on this earth, mm-hmm. you know, devoted to stupid or like wrongheaded ideas or just bullshit tasks. Yeah. yeah. And then you get to the end of your life and you're like, Oh, I fucking wasted it. Yeah. That sort of thing haunts me. Yeah. I don't want to waste my life. I want to do, I want to have a good life and, mm-hmm. uh, feel like at the end of it, I feel like, well, you know, I did okay. Yeah. I guess you got to be kind of forgiving to yourself. Yeah. It's hard to get it perfect. Yeah, for sure. I think you also have to just have like, you have to give what you can to your relationships because that's the stuff that like doesn't, you know, you can't buy or sell or. Right. Yeah. Got to have your priorities straight. Yeah. I feel like I, I mean, I'm not like a hugely social person. Like this is my social life is this show. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, to a large extent, um, I do a lot of social stuff. I don't feel isolated because I have kids and a family and like, yeah, I feel, if anything, I feel over busy. Uh, but you know, I'm not like distracted away from it. Like that's the center of my life. I got, I mean, yeah, those are my people. I'm always with them. Yeah. Uh, but I do sometimes wonder like, wow, we're in the middle of this crazy city polluted yeah but yet it's also kind of great do you know that movie say anything that speech that lloyd dobler gives uh, yeah yeah i don't want to buy anything bought <laughs> or processed all the time yeah. i don't want to process I, anything yeah. bought or sold yeah i, I mean, want to sell anything processed or bought. <laughs> when, I a, when i was when i was and i feel like there's a certain kind of white bro maybe from the midwest uh, of which I am one mm-hmm. who like deeply internalized <laughs> Lloyd Dobler when I was a kid, oh. when I was a kid, uh, like he was a true model for me of how to be a guy. And, and you know what? I could have picked a worse hero. Absolutely. But yeah. like, I felt very connected to Lloyd. Uh, I've watched that movie dozens of times. Same. Yeah. Uh, it's actually a great film. I think it's maybe Cameron Crowe's best film. I think it's great. Yeah. yeah. Holds up on rewatch. It does. And he's uh he's such a likable character. And, um, yeah, I just remember like really feeling, cause you know, he's the kind of guy, he's like not a great athlete, not like super popular, mm-hmm. but like also not like reviled. Yeah. I don't know. I could relate to that. Like sort of being like, okay. Yeah. So there's a place for a person like that. Yeah. Well, there's also like, I feel like we come to that Lloyd Dobler moment a lot in our lives, or at least I have at least a few times, you know, like you're sitting there in Portland thinking like, wait, what am I doing? What do I not want to do? (laughs) What am I good at? What am I scared of? And then, um, and there's this like clear hearted, clear eyed way that he's like, I'm just good at like trying to date this girl. Yeah. I think I'm going to try that. Yeah. <laughs> like there's something about that. That's really nice to return to, yeah. you know, I just want to hang out with Diane. Yeah. That's a great movie. Mm-hmm. I got to watch that again. Yeah. I feel like you're in that moment again. <laughs> I'm always in that moment. And John, yeah. John Mahoney, RIP. Oh my God. I know. Yeah. I love him. Um, what was I just going to, I just had a, oh, here's a question posited by this fucking book that's haunting me. 
Uh, but it's like, if you could do anything, no fear of failure. And this is a common, like, oh my God. you know, in books about positive psychology. And I mean, it's constantly asked, but like, it's worth, it's worth asking every once in a while. If you could do anything without fear of failure or like, I guess like financial consequence, like what would it be? Like, what would your life look like if you could do anything? Like uh, sp spend your time any which way. If I could do anything, I mean, I, I would, I just want to write, I just want to write books. Right. That's kind of just what I want to do. Okay. So I'm with you. Okay. Cause I asked myself this and I start to think about it and it's like, I think I would live near mountains cause I like to climb mountains. Oh, I've got a busy brain and like, I like to walk and I like to walk uphill. Oh, cool. <laughs> and I just, I'm going back to college. I went to college in Colorado. I just got into the habit, but I like to climb on mountains. Like that's okay. where I like to play. So I think I would want to live near mountains, but I sort of have this fantasy that I would have like a montane like existence mm -hmm. where it's just, you have your little weird tower. It's a library. It's filled with books. You go in there during the day, you read, you write, you come out, mm -hmm. ride a horse around, play in the you know, go play in the mountains, yeah. hang out with your family. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mine would be <laughs> by the water, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. I want mountains and water. I want the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You're close here. I guess so. But you know, close and far. It's weird how little I get to the beach. Yeah, I know. We, I know. I mean, it's like we, we could have that, the cliche of that conversation. Uh, I just never go yeah. to the West side, <laughs> but the Californians. Um, so anyhow, yeah, it's like, you know, but the, then I think the, the other question that comes to mind or the other thought that comes to mind whenever I have that little fantasy is like, but would I really be happy? Would I be bored? Would I drive myself crazy? Would I miss the city? Mm -hmm. And then I just, you know, I can go yeah. back and forth. I went on a writing residency in October, VCCA France, and it's this village in, of 900 people in the midi Pyrenees. And I was terrified. I don't speak French. What, what, is the, what are the Midi Pyrenees? It's like um, southwestern France between Toulouse and Bordeaux. It's like just countryside. Um, it's and then there's the mountains and there's Spain. Oh, okay. Um, but like there's the but there's the Pyrenees. I know that yeah. part of France. But like, the, what's the Midi Pyrenees? Like on the way to? Okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe like a little further north than like the borderlands. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and I was terrified and I had been living here for like 10 months and it was incredible because it was the way it, it felt like you, it, they dropped you into Amelie or like Beauty and the Beast or something. Like I, the, my studio was next to an abattoir where like every Saturday and Sunday morning hunters gathered the hounds. They howled, they went into the mist, you heard gunshots, they came back, they dressed all of the boar and deer in that room made their own wine, made their own galettes, invited me over. We had venison and wine and then I'd go back and write. There's one uh, pharmacy. There's one cafe. There's one, I mean, it's a way of life that I think is probably dying in France. Um, it's really only old people who live there, but it was like just so clear. Like and it simple. was clear. Yeah. yeah. And it, and I wrote so much and I, I think about it all the time. Like I wish I could go back there in my head whenever I wanted, but it's hard, especially somewhere like here. It's so different. I can't even, it's hard to, it's hard to tell people exactly what it was like. Cause it was like being in a different time. Well, maybe there, but maybe that can be found. Maybe yeah. that's what I should do. Yeah. 
get out of this rat race. Yeah. Go live and hunt, hunt deer. <laughs> but you, you don't have to do it permanently. I mean, I guess you can't, if you have kids, you kind of have to like take them with you. Well, these people in this book are like, they live on this homestead. They have, they're like home birthing and things are going wrong. Ah. They have, you know, by the way, I know people do this all different ways, but I have witnessed two childbirths uh -huh. and incidentally, one of the births in this book, they have to get rushed to the hospital. Like, man, yeah. that's taking it. That's rolling the dice. I know it can work out fine, but yeah, whew, I'd, I'd want to at least have like doctor at the ready. I know my friend does that. It's crazy. What the home, like the, uh, she did it twice. Yeah. She did it at home. Yeah. But the second baby was 10 pounds. So she had to go emergency rush to the hospital, but it was, yeah. Like kiddie pool, like in a kiddie pool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a friend who did that. Yeah. And just like put a kiddie pool in the living room. Never. I won't like <laughs> here. It's on the record. I will never do that. Oh my God. <laughs> it's like too much. And like it was a long labor. And so my buddy was like, yeah. And I had to like, you know, you have to siphon out the water and the, change the water in the pool. I'm just like, okay, oh God, you got to stop right now. I didn't know that. Well, yeah. There's a lot of details. They don't tell you about home birth. I the, think the water doesn't, you know, it gets lukewarm. You're cold. You got to put warm water in and then it gets dirty. Dirty. Uh... What? Uh... <laughs> How do we get there? <laughs> there are people listening to this episode right now, just like on the subway, who just, you know, <laughs> got a little queasy. Um, so, okay. So Northern California, you are a doctor. Oh yeah. You get your PhD. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your educational background. You, yeah. you get out of Northern California mm -hmm. and you go off to school. I went to Wesleyan for undergrad. All the way east. All the way east. It was so different from California. So I was like, let's go there. And then... It's a good school. It's a great school. I loved it. I loved every moment. So I you... met Alex Chi, who's my teacher there. Ah. So then we remained friends. Um, Tom Drury. I had like really great teachers there. That's awesome. Um, and then I went to work at the NEA in DC for a couple years. When I was like 22. What's no it, the National Endowment for the Arts. National Endowment for the Arts. Which hopefully still exists yeah, by the time say. this comes out. I was going to say. <laughs> um, and then I went to my Virginia for my MFA. Loved it. Waited tables. Fucked around in Virginia for a while. And then. That's a beautiful part of the country. Do. It is so beautiful. Charlottesville and that, you know, that's uh, that's God's country. It really is. It is has all the seasons. It has all the stuff. Right. Yeah. I, it, like I, uh, I've been to Monticello twice and I don't usually like stuff like that, but I liked seeing that. Yeah. It's fascinating. I know. I would, I've been there a lot, but yeah. And yeah. then, but then like the thing too is like I went when I was in eighth grade with like my junior high like you know how junior high classes will go to Washington. Yeah. So I did it then. And then I did it again when I was like 21. But this was before I really like had processed the Sally Hemings part of the story and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Like I'd like to go back and uh, revisit it. Yeah. But at, at the very least, it's a hell of a piece of real estate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I kind of, I bet it's, I bet it's different now too, just with everything that's happened in Charlottesville. I'm, I'm sure. Right. Like it just changes the context yeah, a lot. That's crazy to think that all of that crazy stuff happened there. I know. Right. Yeah. Like UVA, you'd think, I mean, and you can you speak to it better than I, but like, it's a very good school. Yeah. A lot of educated people there. Uh, is the culture, the culture's pretty tolerant. Yeah. I think that most of those people came from outside. They came to Charlottesville cause it's a battleground between like, uh, 
I don't know what the right word is to use, but like between like a new South and an old South or like a woke South and like a A woke South, whatever. I mean, there's a band name. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think they came there because of that, because there's that tension there and they wanted to fuck with them. Yeah. I think that's why Charlottesville is so cool though. Like it's, it's like got energy that's changing the South. I I like college towns. I do too. You could do worse than live in a college town. Yeah. You know, I just think that like, there's something like that's a vital natural resource is young, like 18 to 22 year old people who are coming to get their education, all that energy of youth and idealism. And it's just constantly like replenished. Yes. You know, I think like having that nearby is probably a good thing. Yes. Um, and I guess like living in a huge city, I mean, there's colleges all over Los Angeles, so it's around here, Yeah, but it doesn't feel like it's. I don't know. It's not defining the culture. It's not. Yeah. But there's also just like a never ending supply of young people, young, ambitious people yeah. coming here to make like a Netflix series. <laughs> <laughs> They're defining God, ambition. You know, there's just like not enough Netflix shows. So I'm <laughs> no, right. glad that's happening. I just, yeah, we just need more yeah. Netflix shows. I think I watch them all. So, uh, you watch a lot of Netflix. I, I mean, yeah, but yeah, I do. Yeah. Like documentaries, dramatic series, both. I don't really even like documentaries that much. I like dramatic series. Interesting. I'm the opposite. Yeah. I'm like all about the documentaries and like dramatic series. Like I, I can't, I have a hard time latching on. I, like I, this, this, this will define me right here. Uh-huh. Homeland. Uh-huh. I've watched every episode of Homeland up to this season. Wow. And I'm now I'm just like, eh, I'm over it. And my wife's like, well, it's going to end. You got to find out how it ends. And I'm like, I can't follow it. The plot's too convoluted. I'm ha- they're making me work too hard. I don't know what Carrie's doing. Yeah. I'm exhausted. I'm done. Yeah. I don't need to know how it ends. Yeah. Westworld. I liked season one. Uh-huh. I was like, wow, this is a fascinating sci-fi premise. And like, we're talking about androids. And I watched like the, the premiere, which I was like excited about. Uh-huh. I was like, what the fuck? I'm confused. I can't. <laughs> These HBO shows like uh, Game of Thrones. I have no fucking idea what's going on in that show. I yeah. watched it. I'm like, I have, I couldn't name the characters. Yeah. I cannot. I don't know what's wrong with my brain. I cannot process this stuff. I think I'm just really tolerant of of that stuff. Of like, I'm really forgiving of of um, shows mistakes and kind of just like to disappear into something. With a documentary, I feel like it's harder for me to disappear into it because it's. That you're like bound to the truth in this way that feels really intense to me. So it's not like relaxing uh-huh. shows watching. What does this say about me? <laughs> I'm unforgiving <laughs> and, uh, like how, you know, don't like to relax. Yeah. It's <laughs> my personality. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> should I be making my own Definitely. butter? Right? Should, yeah, I be, go, go. should I be canning <laughs> beets in my basement? Like changing yeah. the location of my outhouse on an annual basis. <laughs> Um, okay. So that's part of your diet. You're, you're obviously a heavy reader. Like you're watching Netflix series. Uh huh. You're reading, like, what's your reading habit? Like, be honest. Like, are you a person who goes through a book a week? Or are you a person who goes through a book a month at best? Um, so far I've read 13 books this year. So I don't know. Is that, that's like a lot. Book I don't every, know. Book every couple weeks. Yeah. Book every couple weeks. Sounds about right. Now yeah. that I'm about to go on book tour and I'm writing a lot. It's I'm like not reading anything, but you're working, you're working on another book or you're working on a script. Uh, I'm working on everything. I'm working on mainly another book. I have like script stuff that I don't know what to do with. It feels like intense to think about. So I'm like after book tour, we'll do that. We'll address but, that. 
Yeah, but the book writing stuff is much less like because it doesn't require someone else's like participation in it for a very long time. That I'm like, I can always go back to that. It's creatively satisfying. Yeah, the other stuff, someone has to respond to it or buy it or do something. It's just like, ugh. yeah. So, do you have like film representation and all that? Or are you going to work on the script and then go seek that? I have it because I sold the um, short story option. Oh, right, right. Yeah. What's up so. with that? Where did that short story appear that it got discovered and optioned? Uh, that was the weirdest thing that happened. I sold the book two years ago, and then a person from CIA called and said, I would like to represent you for the book. What else do you have? And I was like, I don't know. Here's everything else I've ever written. And she picked out the one sci-fi story I have written. It's not even sci It's like post-apocalyptic short story. It's not published. I mean, it's in a magazine, but it isn't published in a book. And she was like, I think we can sell this. And then... It just like turned into a thing. There was like an like a people to bidding on it. Like it was crazy. And then we sold it to a production company and there's a script and now there's a director and hopefully they shoot it this year. That's what they're saying, but I've heard that Who, before. Who's too. they? Who's they? It's a production company called Automatic. Okay. Um they do like uh, like emo sci-fi stuff, uh-huh. um, which is kind of like what this is. It's so. a hot genre right now. Yeah, apparently. My boyfriend just called and was like, Netflix says they're doubling down on sci-fi and fantasy. Now's our time. <laughs> I was like, okay. I think that's like everybody woke up in LA and was like, now's my time. <laughs> yeah. See, this is the thing. You got to buy on the rumor and sell on the news. Like yeah. if everyone's, if they're doubling down, that means they're going to get inundated. Yeah. Like one of the frustrating things too that I found in Hollywood is that like, you come up with an idea and it's like, Oh, we want to do a show about cults. Uh-huh. I, re- I remember when I was like heavy into like the TV tour, like running around town, doing meetings and talking to our managers and our agents and all this. Um, my writing partner and I were like, we were really into cults and our managers, they were like, cult shows are done. Cult shows are done. Oh no my one, God. No one's doing cult shows. Like those are it's been played out. It, it'll never sell. That's the kind of stuff you hear. And then what were we just talking about yeah. on Netflix? It's like yeah. Wild Wild Country. It's like this sensation. Yeah. And There's... you know that like Nexium sex cult thing is going to be a show any minute now. Oh, is that the one with the actress yes. who's trying to recruit people? Yes, for sure. That's already in, in development. Or someone, yeah, yeah, someone optioned that like this, you know, yeah. last year. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Someone contacted her and was like, by the way, I hear you're a recruiter for a sex cult. I'd yeah. love to option your story. This is gold. Yeah. Like, never mind the moral implications. Wait, so you tried to do it and then um, well, no, didn't we were just want like, to? Or? They're, they're like, like, they're like, give us some ideas. You know, tell us some of your ideas and then we'll tell you which one to do. Oh, my God. So this is what bums me out. That's what happened to me. Yeah. They, so- act, they act like you, they, that you work for them. These are people who are, uh, you know, making passive income off of creative people. And look, look, I get it. They're, you have to have some representation. It, like, they perform a necessary function yes. to a degree. but writers shouldn't feel like they work for their fucking representatives. Yeah. It should be the other way around. Yeah. And like, they should be there to like offer some guidance, but like also to just like go out and sell the shit. Yeah. That's your job. It also turns you into a weird, like idea machine where you're like, wait, what is creativity? Am I just like spouting like things that, I mean, am I trying to like catch a zeitgeist that like, I don't uh, know what it is. It, you can't chase the market. Yeah. You can't like try to predict the market. You can't, like, you know, that is a weird meeting. Those meetings where they're like, what do you tell me everything? I'll tell you which one's good. And then you're like, it's just what they think they can sell instead of like sitting down and saying like, here's something I really love and I believe in. And there's one or maybe two ideas like 
that seems like a better way to go about something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I think, I think ultimately as a creative person, you have to trust your own instincts above all else. Like be willing to listen to good advice. You don't want to be like obstinate and bullheaded and self-defeating, but yeah, I think it gets, it can get, it can get noisy and you just have to be able to shut it off and say, you know what, I'm going to write this and you're going to either sell it or I'm going to find somebody who will Yeah, <laughs> go to France in your mind. Yeah. yeah. Go, go, you know, go to the, what is it called? An abattoir? Yeah. <laughs> be among the rotting carcasses of <laughs> the freshly killed wild so boar. Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So you're at UVA. That's where you're getting your master MFA, yes. MFA in creative writing. Yes. And who were you studying with there? Deborah Eisenberg and Ann Beattie, John Casey. That's a good crew. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that sounds lovely. It was, it was a great time. I loved every moment of it. I found my people. I taught. And then I waited tables and was like, what am I doing? <laughs> I right. can't get a job. <laughs> right. I don't have a novel. I'm so educated and <laughs> yeah. I, it's useless in this society. What, uh, and so then it's go get your PhD. So then I really was like, I guess the next thing is, and then I went to do that and it was hard. It was really hard. What, I, like the work of getting the PhD. Yeah. I don't recommend it for everybody. And I think everybody who has an MFA is like, Oh, I'll do that. It's very hard. It's like getting a PhD and also writing a book. <laughs> and you often have to live in places you don't like, like Florida or Utah or Texas, which is where I went. I where, learned where, where to love Houston, University of Houston. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. But it was hard. Houston, Texas is not really like, I'm not a Texas person. So, I just listened yeah. to, uh, I just listened to Lawrence Wright on uh, Fresh Air yesterday while shopping at Trader Joe's. I don't know who that is. He's a guy who wrote The Looming Tower. He's a New Yorker staff oh, writer, okay. but he's from Texas. He lives in Austin and oh. he, he's just published a book about Texas. Mm-hmm. And it's about, you know, it's all about the state and its political dynamics and cultural dynamics yeah. and how it's, and how it's changing. And like, yes. you know, but I didn't realize four of the top 11 largest cities in the United States are in Texas. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of fucking people in Texas. I think Houston's number four. That, that sounds about right. Yeah. It's like New York, LA, Chicago, Houston. Houston. And then Dallas must be the other one, right? Well, Dallas, San Antonio, and Austin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So those, I didn't realize San Antonio was that big. Yeah. San Antonio's beautiful. I mean, Texas is great. I just, I'm not made for that weather. I don't really want to be represented by the people who represent Texas. Like That's changing. It is changing. But let's make Texas purple. Enough. Just make it purple. I know. I'm not even like, I know I want, you know, you want it to be blue, but it's like, I'll take purple. Yeah. I think it's headed that way. I don't know. A lot of, it's a lot of like weird racist stuff happened in Texas to me that I was like, it's not fast enough. Let's yeah. go back. Yeah. Let's to... go back to California. <laughs> yeah. You're in California. But you see, I feel like people who are born in California and are raised here tend to stay here. I mean, why yeah. would you leave? Yeah. In some ways, you know, like, I, I sort of get that. It took me a long time to realize that I left when I was 18. I didn't move back till I, till this last i'm 35 right. until last year and i was like oh it's this is why everyone comes here it's so nice it just was like so i just never i never left the state till i was 18 so i didn't know where what else was out there but that's the way yeah and you go out and you try other things and you see different yeah. ways of life and then you yeah. come back and you live in la and you sell a netflix show yeah that's the way it goes <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's the arc of it's the arc of uh, the life that we all get a netflix show i think <laughs> 
Yeah, that's like the new Andy Warhol. Everyone's famous for 15 minutes, and like in the future, everyone's going to have a Netflix show. <laughs> At least one series. I just can't. It's too ridiculous. It is in a way. But uh, man, are they spending some money on some content? Where are that money? I don't know. Where is that money coming from? Well, I mean, I think they might be going into some debt. Right, but you know how businesses do that. I don't understand economics. I don't know either. They're like yeah. we'll just take on two billion dollars in debt, and over the long haul, it'll pay off or something. But they're spending like billions, I want to say, on content. But yeah. they have that user base. Everyone's paying fourteen dollars a month, and it's a global user base. I don't know how many people are Netflix subscribers, but if they have what thirty million people mm-hmm. subscribing to Netflix, I mean, I'm just throwing a number out there, and everybody's paying fourteen. That's three hundred forty million dollars a month. Oh my god. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right or no? Something like that. Yeah. I can't do math either. No, that's I wasn't I, even going to try. That's why I have a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but so they have cash flow is the point, And they have this giant user base. And I'm sure they can get financing from banks. And they're just going out there and they're going to try to own the content, which is where the money is. Yeah. It's like you don't want to license other people's shit. You want to make the content and distribute it. So they yeah. own they own the whole thing. Yeah. That's what, I mean, all these people are doing it now. Apple's doing it. Amazon's doing it. Kind of excited to see what Apple does, but yeah. Well, they're doing that uh, Reese Witherspoon and uh, Jennifer Aniston show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. They have, they're supposed to spend a ton of money though in the next year on. I mean, they got it. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about money for a second. Um, Oh no. No. (laughs) This is, this show, this this show is basically undergirded by a back to the land theme. (laughs) But these people, uh, it, it just brings up interesting ideas, you know, and these people consider money like a form of energy and they're like, it should be redistributed. You know, you, if you sit on all this energy, it's bad. You got to keep it flowing. You don't want to have it constricted, mm. you know, which kind of makes some sense to me. Yeah. And so you think about a company like Apple and you always hear like, well, they've got cash reserves of like $300 billion or whatever the fuck it is. Yeah. And you're just like, really? Yeah. Like, isn't it like immoral? for anyone or any entity in an, in a world with this much poverty and suffering to sit on that much money, just like have it like lying around in a bank. Yeah. Got to make it flow back into the yeah bloodstream of society to make content for people like us. Yeah. So not watch <laughs> or fall asleep to at night. I know that is a little bit devastating when you think about it and all that, like this computer, uh, it's like, you know, all the, like they're, they're mining ore, they're yeah. polluting water, <laughs> yeah. like terrible working conditions, just so like we can record this on the, on this laptop. <laughs> but isn't that how new nations are formed? Like, I guess so it's hard to, you know, it's hard to live. It's hard to live perfectly. Yeah. And, and I'm always a little suspicious too. Like as much as I can admire people that have the courage of their convictions, whenever somebody's really certain, mm-hmm. I'm always like, Whoa. Like that always like my, my, uh, what do you call it? Not defenses, but they're like a caution light flashes in my yeah. brain. Like, well, that's weird. Yeah. Like, yes. Like having complete faith in God or something like never doubting anything feels a little like where's the critical thinking? Like this, where's the nuance in that, that, that is worrying. Yeah. But it's like, okay. So if somebody feels like they know the way capital T capital W yeah, and like they have it figured out. Yeah. It's like, okay, like, why don't we settle down a little bit? (laughs) It's like, take it down a notch. But then if there's somebody like me who is forever like muddying every like body of water that I enter, like, oh, I don't know. And like, you wind up 
living this sort of like a worry that you could end up living like a feckless existence where you don't stand for anything mm -hmm. or you don't make really consequential decisions. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, so what's the, what's cause like, you know, a truly wise person does arrive at some conclusions. I mean, you know, yeah. like with the, the people on whose shoulders we stand, you know, in terms of our reading and our literature and our spiritual traditions, yeah, like they did arrive at some sort of conclusion. They did have like a way of being that was uh, corresponding with their, um, you know, their highest ideals and so on and so forth. So you do at some point kind of have to decide where you stand. Yeah. But I think like a lot of the great philosophers and great thinkers and great early political minds, like had, we saw them like trying to figure it out. Like a lot of the stuff they wrote was trying to figure it out and trying to reckon with like the competing forces at play and try in, in, in living a good life. And I think the answer is always like, it's complicated. And I, I don't think that there are any answers out there that I, that I'm like, Oh, that one seems like the one. And I think that the great books that I do have read are always, they come to that conclusion of that, that, that's, that says, um, like things change and it's hard and you have to do the best that you can. I yeah. think, I really think that that's the underpinning of, of any kind of philosophy that I gravitate to. I mean, even Buddhism, like we grew up Japanese Buddhist and the, in... what, what did that mean? Like, were you guys going to temple every weekend? Mm -hmm. when, yeah. when do Buddha? Cause I'm, I'm like Bud ish. It's like, <laughs> as I like to joke, but yeah. like I've, I've been to a Buddhist monastery once just for Monastery. like for like a day of mindfulness, huh. I drove down and like, yeah, I was yeah. like walking around with these monks and like, you know, trying to see what it was like, but I've never been to a Buddhist temple in my life. I don't go. Oh, so like, what does it look like? You go on Sundays? Like yeah. What? It's very like modeled after the feels like Judeo Christian. Like it just feels like there's a congregation and there's a not, they don't call it a homily, but there's like a, you know, a reverend who gives a speech. There's like a shrine devotion chanting part of it too. You meditate like as a group? No, that's, it's not like Zen Buddhism. It's like Jodo Shinshu Buddhism. So it's, um, it's a different sect. Did you grow up, uh, meditating or anything like that? Um, my dad made us meditate when we were little and then I, I didn't really take to it. Okay. So I was like, I'm going to be one of these parents. Like this, this is very Los Angeles. I feel sort of embarrassed to even admit this, but I was like, I want to give my daughter something. Cause like, I'm not a religious person. Uh, -huh. uh, I was raised Catholic. It didn't take. And I was like, I want to try to give her some tools, Yeah, you know, to like weather the storms of life or whatever. And I was like, meditation has been helpful to me. It seems non-denominational or non, uh, dogmatic. Just like, here's how to yeah. sit down, be quiet, you know, do some breathing, relax yourself a little bit, get in touch with your feelings, whatever it is. And, you know, you're trying to impart this to a four-year-old and I tried to do it with her before bed, like in very short increments. But then I could sort of feel her like resisting it. Like bedtime would come and she'd be like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And I just stopped because yeah. I was like, you know what? I don't want, I don't want to ruin this for her. And I feel like if you force it, then they're just like, I, I know from my own experience, they're just going to reject it. Yeah. It's not going to take, you got to let them, you got to let people come to these kinds of things on their own. People yeah. have to find their own way. Yeah. I think it was good that it helped us. Like he would ha have us like imagine a place and imagine the place are like happy place, happiest place. And so that was like fun, but I don't know if that was like meditation. Right. <laughs> it was yeah. fun to sit there and imagine. I'm sure there are like, there are probably strategies you can use. I think like 
maybe when she's a little older, I would take her to one of these like monastery events where there are other kids. Yeah. Where there's like some sort of situation where there could be social reinforcement with her own peer group. Yeah. Because if it's just dad trying to tell you, it's not like I'm some kind of expert. Yeah. Plus it's just like, you know, it feels a little onerous when your dad's trying to enforce something on you. Yeah. Like sit down and be quiet. Yeah. Um, but okay. So you're raised Japanese Buddhist, Mm -hmm. but you didn't really get into meditation. Like, Mm -hmm. do you still consider yourself a Buddhist or did you sort of leave that behind? Yeah. I mean, all the like funerals and weddings are always Buddhist in my family. So, but it's more cultural, secular than, than in practice. I don't really go to temple anymore. I did go to Japan a few times. That was pretty awesome. Made me want to go back to temple, but, um, I haven't really done it. Maybe now here, I mean, there's a huge Japanese Buddhist community here, so yeah. maybe I'll do that here. But, um, but I mean, what I was saying about, about it was like, it, I like that in Buddhism, there's, they're like very comfortable with failure in, in meditation too. Like falling out of it is like kind of part of it. And, um, like questioning and, and doubt is like accepted and encouraged. The, yeah. You're supposed to question. Yeah. And I like that. That's like a part of, that's like a thing I can get behind. <laughs> like it's right. okay if you fall down and have no idea if this is the correct way. Well, and the other thing that, and you were sort of alluding to this earlier, which I really respond to is this idea that there's like a living Dharma and that everything is always evolving. And I think in so many spiritual traditions in the world where I find myself resisting so much and feeling so uh, demoralized is by the, uh, like this, the certainty and the resistance to change. Like you see this among, um, you know, fundamentalists of all stripes and religious movements who don't recognize the basic truth that everything's impermanent. Everything's always changing and growing and dying and being reborn. Yes. And people who want some sort of static view or some sort of, maybe this is where the back to the landers are wrong. (laughs) They're resisting the flow of history and, you know, but that makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I I feel like, you know, intellectual traditions, like knowledge is always evolving and it's always fluid, always, 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 you know? And so, uh, I feel like Buddhism, at least good, you know, certain strains of it, most strains of it accommodate that better than maybe certain other traditions. Yeah, I think so. And I think I like that they don't like deny the existence of other gods too. Like, that's kind of cool. Like you don't have to disavow like something else to believe something to believe it. I I think that's really true. So, okay. So you are a doctor. Do you have any desire to teach? (laughs) Keep calling me. I mean, you Um, got your PhD. Some people, some people are like, you know what? I went through all this education. Like call me doctor, motherfucker. I know. I tried to register, like buy a plane ticket with doctor. And then I, my passport doesn't say doctor. And it almost didn't let me on the flight. And now I've, so now I'm like, forget it. I'm not a doctor. You're a doctor. <laughs> now I'm, I'm just going to call you Dr. Okay. Gable. Right. Uh, but do you have, do you have a desire to be an academic? Uh, I did when I was getting that PhD and then I went on the job market and got really close and then didn't get it. And it wasn't even like a job I really, really wanted. Right. And it was so hard to get to that campus visit point right. and then not get it. And I was like, like I had another Lloyd Dobler moment where I was like, wait, what am yeah. I doing? Yeah. 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 Well, the academic job market is insane. Yeah. And adjuncting is insane. Yes. 
And all these universities, not all of them, but a lot, a great many of them have these gigantic endowments. The way we pay teachers in this country is utterly fucked. Yeah. And, uh, someone was tweeting the other day that we should pay teachers the same thing we pay our national politicians, mm. same benefits, yeah. same salary. Like, aren't they, or no, it was one of these kids from Parkland who tweeted it. Yeah. And it was like, you know, getting uh, mad retweets. But I was like, yeah, yeah. Like that makes sense. Cause like these congressmen, they get a pension, they get all, you know, they get all I sorts know. of like lovely benefits, but like for the rest of us, no, thank you. And, yeah. um, and then I was just reading this, uh, book by Sarah Kenzie, or she was just on the show. And like a lot of this essay collection that she wrote called the view from flyover country talks about the onerousness of like the education job market. And then basically any job market where a lot of people want to do it, mm -hmm. there are all these barriers to entry and there's a lot of privilege involved, you know, like mm -hmm. in entertainment industry or yeah. in any kind of media profession, yes. politics, yeah. uh, academia, you know, it's sort of like a walled garden. Um, so it, it, yeah. it can get frustrating, but I think you're on the right path. You're here in LA, you know, you've got a short story option. Do you got a novel in print? Yeah. Shit, this stuff could be worse. Yeah, really could. going to go on book tour and see what happens. Okay. Well, it's, uh, I would keep talking to you. I'm having such a good time, but I actually have to go to a meeting. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I got, I got to change out of my sweatpants, which is, uh, <laughs> I deep, was saying they look very comfortable. Deeply disappointing. I highly recommend if you're not into fleece sweatpants in late April, <laughs> early May, you're missing out in life, but, uh, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Yeah. Congratulations to you. And I wish you well. I hope we cross paths again here in town. Thanks. Yeah. It was really nice to talk to you too. Okay, folks, there you go. That's Asia Gable. Her debut novel is called The Ensemble. It's available from Riverhead Books. You can find her online at asiagable.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Asia Maybe. She's also, uh, I think she also has an Instagram. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music, as always. Thanks to the band Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music if you would like to support this program you can do so at patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you would like to write to me share your thoughts on the program share your thoughts on your life tell me a story the address is letters at other don't forget the other people podcast has its own official app it's free go get the other people app wherever you get your apps it's a great way to listen I feel bad about the umbrella. I don't like to lose my patience. Fortunately, I was alone when it happened. I wasn't, a, you know, there were no witnesses. At least I don't think there were any witnesses. Being a human being is hard. I just want to make it look easy, you know? I want to be one of those people who makes it look easy. Easy.